The text for this morning's sermon is taken from Luke chapter 7, where Jesus raises the son of a widow. And in connection with that, we'll read of another resurrection story where the prophet Elijah raises also the son of a widow, and that takes place in 1 Kings 17. So read together 1 Kings 17, the verses 8 to 24. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that's Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, Neither, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And then turning ahead to the New Testament, we'll also read our text, which is Luke 7, the verses 11 to 23. This takes place shortly after Jesus has taken up his, his, has begun his earthly ministry, the three years of earthly ministry. He's called the disciples and he's given a few teachings and also performed several miracles Luke 7, beginning at verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, 
and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the, man had, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, at some point in our lives, we either have or will stand at a graveside. And those are hard times. Those are difficult times, and they challenge our faith. They challenge our faith and pose the question, do I really believe in the resurrection? And in the passage before us today, we are taught that Jesus Christ is Lord of life and death, that he has the power to raise the dead and restore hope to the hopeless. Now, he has performed miracles earlier in the book of Luke. He's healed the servant of a centurion. He's cleansed a leper. He gave a paralytic the ability to walk. And he performed many other signs and wonders. And in these miracles, we're shown that Christ's ministry extended to every social class in Israel. He ministered among the lepers, the social outcasts of the day, and also those who had a good reputation in the eyes of men. And he worked miracles among those who showed faith in God. But now in our text, Christ, he has traveled from the city of Capernaum to a small village, a small hamlet called Nain. And this is the only place in Scripture where this village is mentioned. It's not an important town like Nazareth or a major city like Jerusalem, but it's a small farming community. If it's not in the middle of nowhere, it would be right next to it. And so what brings Jesus to this town? Why has he spent a day traveling from Capernaum to this countryside town? Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus is on 
a mission. He's on a mission to proclaim good news to the poor. In Luke 4, Jesus himself says he has come to proclaim good news to the poor, that he has been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, that he's come to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so with this in mind, we'll see that our Lord gives life to the grieving widow, and we'll consider the grief, the, the gifts, and the glory. Now as Jesus nears the gates of the town, he comes across a funeral procession. And at the front of this procession walks a lonely widow. We're told in verse 12 that the body being carried out is that of her son. It's that of her only son. And this is significant to our text because this is a time without the rigorous social welfare systems that we have in place today. There's no retirement savings plans. There's no life insurance policies. And because of this, in the ancient culture, the older members of a family, they were dependent on their children to care for them when they became old. But now this widow has lost her only son. She's lost the one who was supporting her, and she's now doomed, it seems, to become the most hopeless member of this town, dependent solely on the charity of either surviving relatives or her neighbors. And we see then that the timing of our Lord is also perfect here as it always is. In ancient Palestine, when a death took place, it was the custom to have the funeral on the very same day. The, the hot climate caused bodies to decompose very fast. And so according to the normal customs after the death of this young man, his body would have been anointed in oil and wrapped in cloth and placed on a stretcher or a beer as it's in the ESV. And then his body would be carried out of the town and placed in a tomb. And yet before they can even leave the village, Jesus sees the grieving widow and he intervenes on her behalf. And verse 13, we're told that Jesus had compassion on her, and he tells her not to weep. Jesus sees her and has compassion for her. In other words, his heart breaks for her. He sees and understands the situation that she's in. He sees that he, she is facing a time of anxiety and heartbreak, and he also knows that he's able to change that situation. And that's why he can tell this widow not to weep. From anyone else's lips, it would have been callous. But when Jesus says this, he says it because he's about to turn her sorrow into joy. He's about to bind up her broken heart. And in this way, we also recognize that the compassion shown by Christ is actually a fulfillment of the compassion shown by God in the Old Testament. God had given special provisions for the Israelites in order that the widows and the orphans would be cared for. There were laws about gleaning, about leaving the edges of your field for the poor to gather food. 
And in the prophets, we frequently read that God demands mercy to be shown to widows. And when that isn't shown, the people are rebuked. So God saw their grief in the Old Testament, and now in the coming and the incarnation of Jesus Christ, he also sees the grief and the suffering of the helpless. And this can give us so much comfort in our own trials as well. Because we know that Christ, he saw all the grief and all the suffering of this world. He experienced it himself. And he's fully human in this way. He's he's just like us except that he is sinless. And while he was on earth, he saw people lose their loved ones. And he knows what it is like for you to also lose someone that you love. Someone that you don't have a chance to say goodbye to. And we know that he felt those same emotions that we experience because he wept also over the death of his friend Lazarus. And here in our passage, he's filled with compassion, with a deep love and mercy for this widow. He understood what suffering and grief looks like. And sometimes when we are faced with suffering in our own lives, we're prone to, to say or to think to ourselves that no one understands what we're going through. And maybe no one that you know here in this room or maybe no one that you know in your congregation does fully grasp what you're going through. Maybe no one can fully understand the abuse or the loss that you've suffered. But Jesus, the Lord of life, he does know. And he is our faithful high priest. He's able to sympathize with us when we are weak, when we are fearful of the future, or when we are grieving at the graveside. And as we confess in Lord's Day 1, he is the one to whom we belong in body and soul, in life and in death. Now in verse 14, we are told that Christ touched the beer and the bearers stood still. And this is now our, our second point, the Lord's gift of life. Uh, beer is basically, I don't even know if that's how you pronounce the word to be honest, but I think it is. It's basically a wooden coffin and it's open at the top. And so it's basically a stretcher. And the body would be placed on this stretcher as the people brought it out to the tomb. And now Jesus, in verse 14, he walks right out to it and he touches it. He touches it and those carrying this stretcher stop. And they stop because this is something that a Jew would never have done. You would never touch something that is carrying a dead body unless you were forced to. Because if you touched a stretcher that had a dead body on it, you yourself would be unclean. And yet Jesus goes right up and touches it. Now for the Jewish people, it was impossible to go through life without at times becoming unclean. And unclean, uncleanness isn't the same as, as sin. But the cleanliness laws were given to mark Israel as a holy nation, a a pure nation set apart for the glory of God. 
And yet Jesus, he seems to break these cleanliness laws and just touch what is unclean. And in earlier, earlier miracles, Jesus did this as well. He touched the leper, for instance. And so Jesus, he wasn't afraid to cross those cultural boundary lines of, of purity and cleanliness. In fact, he goes out of his way to break those laws, it seems. But Jesus can do this because he cleansed what was unclean. He's the Holy One of God. His holiness cleanses what is unclean, and he's about to give life to this dead body. And that's what sets him apart from the men who are carrying the stretcher. And so Jesus shows and and teaches us that mercy is more important than ceremony. And so having stopped the procession, Jesus speaks to the dead man and he says to him, young man, arise, and he sits up. And this is where we see several parallels with our reading in 1 Kings 17. Both of, those, both of these, these stories, both of these events involve widows being met at the gates of a town. Both widows grieve the loss of their son, and both sons are crying out when they're revived. And at the end, in both cases, we have the same phrase, he gave him back to his mother. And then after the miracle, the, the people who witness this miracle acknowledge that this is a man sent by God. But what je- sets Jesus apart from Elijah is that he had no need to, to pray for God to act because he and the Father are one. Jesus is true God of true God. He's filled with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He has power as God himself. And so he simply commands the man to live, and he lives. He lives because Christ has the power over life and death. And then in verse 15, we're told that Christ gave the man back to his mother. And so first, Jesus gives life to the man, and that's one gift, and then Jesus gives the man back to the mother, and that's the second, the more significant gift. By the same action that rose this man to new life, Jesus gave new hope to the mother. It raises an interesting question. What was the basis for this miracle? Why did Christ have compassion on this widow? In all the other miracle accounts that occur in Luke, there's a reference to faith. Jesus here, though, he doesn't say anything like, go, your faith has made you well. No, this widow receives God's mercy and compassion because our God is a merciful and compassionate God. And so this is a perfect example of Christ fulfilling that messianic mission of proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, of rescuing the oppressed. And he acts here out of pure grace because he knows the pain and suffering of this woman and he acts out of pure grace because he's filled with love and mercy for her. Christ can 
act in this way because he is also, he is the Lord. He has the keys of death and Hades as we're told in the book of Revelation. That means he's able to control both life and death. He's able to cheat death out of its victims. And so this miracle account is a foreshadowing of the great day when Christ returns and when he raises every person who has ever lived up to new life. When he reunites bodies and souls and then when we who believe will be given to Christ our Lord to be his possession. Now each one of us has gone through challenging year, year and a half. There's been debates within churches over how to deal with restrictions, how do we deal with obeying the government and yet honoring our God. But overshadowing, overshadowing all of this is the truth that each one of us, unless the Lord returns, will one day die. Whether it's COVID or something else, each one of us one day will be placed in a grave. And so when you're faced with that reality, brothers and sisters, what is your comfort? We can't take our earthly possessions with us. We can't enjoy those possessions when we're lying in in a grave or even when we're in heaven. We won't have those same possessions. The only source of true and eternal comfort that we can have, that anyone can have, is that they belong to Jesus Christ in life and in death. And so, brothers, sisters, you too can find comfort in him when you place your faith in him, when you trust in him. When we trust in the Lord, it's then and only then that we will have a security and a comfort that nothing can ever take away from us. In the face of all the uncertainty and all the despair that this life throws at us, we'll be able to say that the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. Even as Jeremiah confessed as he lay in the ash heap of Jerusalem. And this speaks not only to our physical life, not only to the physical resurrection, but also our spiritual life. Do you know someone who has abandoned the faith or someone who is spiritually dead? Well, then we have the answer. We can cry out to God in prayer. We can plead with him to revive and renew the hearts of those who've wandered away or those who are lost. And if you yourself are dead in your trespasses and in your sins... You can plead with him to have mercy upon you, and he will have mercy upon you. Our God is a gracious God. Jesus is a compassionate Lord. and He will have mercy upon you when you place your faith in him. He laid down his life for you so that you might have a new life. And that brings us to the final point in which we'll look at how the crowd And how we should react to Jesus' miracles. When we go back to verse 11 of our passage, we're told that there was a great crowd traveling with Jesus. And in verse 12, we're told of a second crowd traveling with the widow. 
Now, as Jesus traveled around Galilee, Galilee, northern Israel today, many of the people from that region, they began to follow him. And at this point, his popularity has, has grown so that Luke says that there's a great crowd, a very numerous crowd. And we can imagine that this was a crowd filled with joy, filled with marvel as they witnessed all of the Lord's miracles that he performed. And they surely recognized that Jesus was a great man who was filled with the Spirit of God. And perhaps some of them even recognized or thought that this was the Messiah. And then in verse 12, we're told of the second crowd, the crowd traveling with the widow. And it looks as if the entire village has come out to offer what comfort they can to the widow. And within our own church community, maybe we can understand how this works. In, in small towns, it's still the case. And I think it's true in our own church community that when there's a sudden loss, a sudden unexpected loss, the, the people tend to gather around and comfort one another and support one another. And in Nain, too, the people gathered to grieve with and comfort the widow. Yet there's no immediate hope. There's just grief and sadness. If, if these people understood the Old Testament well, they may have known that there would be a future resurrection. But even that future resurrection wouldn't have been much comfort to this widow in her situation. Because she was presently without family. She was presently without that support she needed to survive. But then Jesus came. And he gives new life to the man and he gives hope to the widow. And so it's no wonder that the people of the town were so amazed. And in verse 16, we're told that fear seized them. And they glorified God. The, the two crowds have become one. They're filled with a righteous and godly fear. They're marveling at the works of the Lord. They recognize that Jesus had just performed a divine act. That this was a man who had been sent by God. And so it's this righteous and holy fear that leads them to glorify God. And they declare God's glory, and soon the news of what he has done spreads throughout the countryside. It spread throughout the whole region. And news spreads among all the people of Israel that a great prophet has once again been raised among God's people. And yet while they recognized that this was a man who had been sent by God, we aren't told that they did recognize him as God. And this is made clear to us in the next section of Luke, verse 18 and following, where John's disciples come to Jesus. John has heard about all that Jesus has done, and yet he's doubting whether Jesus is truly the Christ. So he sends those disciples to ask if he is the promised Messiah, or if they should be expecting someone else. This is John the Baptist, the one who had baptized Jesus himself, who saw the dove descend and who had cried out, Look, the Lamb of God, 
the one who takes away the sins of the world. And this man is now unsure about who Jesus is. It's remarkable that before Jesus had performed any miracles, John had faith that this was the Messiah. And now, after he has heard about all these things, he begins to have doubts. John is sitting in in prison. He's likely realizing that his own death is fast approaching. And then he hears that Jesus isn't raising an army like he had expected. He's not planning to overthrow the Roman occupying nation. Instead, he's traveling through the countryside of Galilee, healing lepers and caring for widows. And how does our Lord respond to John's question? Well, he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And here Jesus draws on an Old Testament prophecy. He draws on Isaiah's prophecy in chapter, Isaiah chapter 61. And there Isaiah specifically mentions that the coming Messiah will comfort all who mourn. He will grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. He'll give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. And so Christ, by alluding to Isaiah 61, he's reminding John and his disciples of what his mission statement was, of the reason he came into this world in the first place. And by carrying out his, his, his mission as it's written in Isaiah 61, he's showing that he is fully human and able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and in our suffering, but he's also God, and he's able to turn our sorrow into a joy. Now John and the crowds, John and his disciples, they seem to fail to realize that Jesus was the one who was greater than Elijah. That he was the one that Isaiah had prophesied would come. But what do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah? That he came and fulfilled the Father's will perfectly? Do you believe that he is the Lord of life? Well, brothers and sisters, if this is your confession, then as you go through this life, this life that is so often filled with suffering and death, then we can also be filled with joy. And like the crowd, we can spread the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us so that the whole region of the Fraser Valley is filled with the good news. And we can proclaim what Christ has done not only in the sense of a future hope and resurrection, but also how he has raised us up to new life already, how he has filled us with his spirit, how he has given us freedom from sin and the ability to continue to fight against those sins which still remain within us.
We can speak of who he is to those who do not believe in him. We can speak of the glorious hope that we have even when we stand grieving at the graveside. We can confess that we truly do believe in the resurrection because our Lord is a Lord of life and we can rest in that comfort. Now we don't know what happened later on to this widow or to the young man. We aren't even told their names. Maybe they followed Jesus, maybe they joined those crowds or perhaps they stayed in the village. But we do know what will happen to us because Christ has conquered death. He conquered death just as Isaiah predicted in Isaiah chapter 25 where the prophet said he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So, brothers and sisters, as we continue to wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can continue to pray with the church of all ages. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And we can sing, even as we will this afternoon, Lord willing, that he truly is our hope in life and death. Amen.